right, welcome to another episode of Reptile Fight Club. My name is Justin Julander, and I'm your host for this wonderful evening. And with me, as always, is Mr. Chuck Poland. I am going you? by Sweet Lady DDP today. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Yes. Oh, that's 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 conflicting, man. I, <laughs> I, I just I, want you to like me. That's okay. All. I got you. Yes. Well, I I've, like I've you. heard, You're... I've heard nothing about, <laughs> yeah, you know, but how, how uh, dedicated you are to the sweet lady DDP. And so I'm like, I gotta be, you know, I gotta yeah. get on that train. That's my, that's my field herping fuel. And that's the yeah. guys give me a hard time. Cause we stop and they're all buying a bunch of iced coffee drinks or something. I'm buying sweet lady DDP, but hey, uh, you gotta do what you gotta do. Right whatever sounds uh, like your uh, dogs want to chime in oh yeah there. yeah no that they wait right to, right when you hit the record button they're like let's go <laughs> yeah that's the way uh dogs behave themselves i had a bird that would do that she'd like flip out and just start squawking and screaming and and then like annoy the then the dogs would freak out and start howling and stuff it was great everything great in your fun. house goes crazy yeah yeah, yeah. all yeah, the pets yeah. go off at once but well, um, we got a fun episode tonight. We've got uh, a couple uh, heavy hitters in the reptile area. We got Nick Mutton, yeah. my uh, co-author on, on a few books here, and uh, Casey Cannon. So we're going to be chatting. They're they're going to be fighting. Chat about yeah, uh, power feeding the dreaded power feeding. <laughs> the more power, more power. Cool. Got to get those things up and going. Can't wait around. Sure. No patience. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I I uh, enjoyed your uh, episode, your Halmahera episode. Did did we already talk about Thank that? On, uh, on I, I think it got a mention, but <laughs> did we uh, mention did, it? Yeah, yeah. No. So uh, you know, oh, more yeah, developments on yeah, more developments on that is yeah. uh, I um, Blake Bauer and and um, Shane uh, reached yeah. out to me, so I think we're gonna sit down and and uh, start doing some. Uh, brainstorming and and um mm-hmm. uh, you know i'd like to see where that goes uh i mean maybe we can get something organized and and get people into it and actually start delivering on some of this shit that i was talking about in the episode so <laughs> now you uh, gotta we'll follow see. through yeah yeah i know right? that's, <laughs> that's what cool. running your that's mouth cool. does no i so. mean that's you know that's needed to to keep a project like that going strong yeah and, well, and i, I, I think, guess what know, really kind of got me was you know you said you bought them in 2011 yeah they came in they came okay. in like beginning of 2012 i think but so i approximated them to be yeah. probably 11 animals i mean they yeah. were you know 100 and something grams like they were still mm-hmm. really small but you know seeing what seeing what hatchlings look like versus what i got um yeah. i would i would approximate them to just be you know something like a year old and yeah you know some of mine were hard to get started i don't know you know like uh, i guess the like take-home message was 2011 to 2019 you know that's not a instant gratification nope. project it, <laughs> yeah, that's it, no it, it definitely isn't well yeah. and, and you know the nice the nice thing is 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 all three of those guys all three of us are kind of long haulers yeah. uh yeah. W- with tracy so you know i think that's what's necessary and and hopefully we get together and and uh you know figure some stuff out and, and, uh, you know, can bring other people in, but I think we want to just kind of get together, talk it out a little bit and see, see, see what's what. And, uh, maybe all this, uh, talk right now is premature, but, uh, I'm, I'm a little excited about it. So it'd be cool. Yeah. Good luck, man. I'm sure rooting for you. That'd be, that'd be cool to see. 
Yeah. That's a species you can't be impatient with. They're just like, Yeah. No, it, it is it's totally a you know slow slow go. Um I got, nope. I got a female that was it is probably a year or two old when it came in in two thousand and ten. Uh-huh. And it's in the same cage it's been in since two thousand and ten. I'm afraid to move it. It never misses a meal. <laughs> it's never given me a moment's trouble, but I'm never changing its cage. I'm it's gonna live its whole life in there, no stress. Uh, it's yeah. lots of breed, but I don't have a male that's mature. Um, uh, cause you know, the deal with Almaharas, you, it's like, if you want a pair, you better buy two pairs. Yeah. yeah. You're not gonna, you know, last time it's like, you know, I had a male, the female wasn't ready. I loaned the male to Ryan. It crashed and died immediately. Uh, like it yeah. just, it moved it. It was doing fine. It's like it, it moved 40 <laughs> minutes away and crashed. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So, easily stressed yeah um, now i have this female that keeps keeps turning jet black every year wanting to breed just sitting there yeah mm. it's crazy right they get nice and dark and you're like, like oh my looking. god i know what's going on here oh, <laughs> oh yeah. help me they look right? so cool when they turn black like that yeah like, <laughs> yeah she yeah. looks great it's just probably not more than six and a half feet long because yeah. what's the point of feeding her up or you know yeah. Yeah. My, my male was, he was pretty lean, but man, his head was just huge. I mean, just a huge head on this like skinny little body. But I mean, that's, I mean, that's how they roll. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't, I don't. When they, yeah. when they very, very, very first came in about the first batch that came in, Doug Price imported about a dozen of them. And I ended up with like four of those. And one of them, it never ate in captivity. It lived for about a year and before it just starved to death, but it never yeah. ate ever, but it was huge. The snake was yeah. probably, 10 feet long, but in a head the size of like a big berm and yeah. eyes the size of marbles. It was just yeah. like a giant head. And I don't know what it was eating fruit bats or whatever, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't rats. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's so long ago. I look back and, you know, at past failures with that sort of stuff. And it's, it's almost certainly at least in large measure, my own inexperience in that era, you know, just didn't know and, you know, treat it like everything else. And you don't really realize mm-hmm. how it's, yeah. Well, I mean, you don't know until you, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's, it's tough, right? Like the scrub pythons being hard to breed. It's like people always miss the secret in that they think there is the secret. And the secret is don't want to get big and fat and quit fucking with them. Just leave them alone. Just leave them alone and minimize external stress and just leave them be. People who fail is because they're always fretting over them. They're always worrying about everything. They're just, they think that there's a magical recipe that if they just keep changing what they do every year, they'll eventually hit this magic recipe of success. And by changing what you do every single year, you never allow them uh, to get into a, a, an annual rhythm or yeah. anything. It's like, so you're kind of, it's overthinking it. It's just, yeah. leave them alone. Yeah. no, I mean, you know, like, like I feel this way with chondros too, is, is they do best when you just ignore them. I mean, obviously you got to, yeah. And, 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 Tracy A are the exact same way, exact same way. I had a, I had a Marut chondro. It was just a single male. And I didn't know how I ended up with it. And it lived for five or six years, just sitting in a tub on a paper towel, the water bowl with one stick, no heat, no light, no nothing. Just sitting on top of a rack in my adult room for years. And it never missed a meal, never had yeah. a bad shed, never gave me a moment's trouble ever. And mm-hmm. I just completely left this thing alone. Never touched it. <laughs> thrived i think i gave yeah. it to eric burke because it was like he had, a, he had a mate for it or something but it was just yeah leave them alone people yeah get bad with green pythons and the people are always missing them and they're weighing the mice and it's like i've never weighed a rodent in my life 
Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, even my rodent guys like, oh my, you know, ask them how big a you know, rat is. You know, like, well, my mediums are like 150 grams. To it's like, I don't know what that means. I've never <laughs> weighed a rodent like yeah. at all. I have no frame of reference for that. And I, yeah. The only reason I know weights of rodents is because we use them in the lab and weigh them on a daily basis to see if the virus is making them lose weight, but (laughs) a little different, but yeah. So you're weighing rodents heavily. Well, certain eight, like like, I know what a rodent weighs, huh? uh, Yeah. Ah. Yeah. We're, well, not anymore. (laughs) I'm not weighing rodents anymore, but yeah, you're, you're, yeah, directing yeah. the weights of the rodents but I got you. Yeah. yeah all right sorry enough <laughs> no ahead, it's, that's good no that's yeah. uh it's exciting to hear and i i'm really curious to see what what goes on this is going to be a, yeah. a good year i'm i've got a blackhead that's that should be laying eggs here as well and i i really oh. want those to succeed this year because uh, having yeah, them come that. so close two years ago just like this uh, is the year. Uh, yeah, that's gonna hurt your feelings if it doesn't. Uh, but I need to get a, a nest box in there soon because she, yeah. if she doesn't have a nest box and she lays, she she doesn't <laughs> coil them. Like, I don't know, all like, over the place, huh? I don't know if that's common for blackhead females, but mine just does not give a crap about her eggs. She doesn't try to yeah. wrap them or protect them. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, my eastern pair, the females the same way. It's like you got to be on it, and sometimes yeah. the womus. It's like you got to be right there they're just they're just eggs rolling around under the yeah. newspaper yeah yeah well and i mean they're they're usually down a, a you know some kind of animal burrow so they're probably could probably just leave them and they'd incubate fine or, or whatnot mm-hmm. so it's yeah, probably just a, last year's 2021 blackhead clutch is like yeah this nice nest box why are you underneath this paper like, yeah like, oh. yeah they they, we'll they have a mind of their own <laughs> but uh that that uh western uh blackhead that somebody saw uh, out in the pilbara um the patternless uh, yeah <laughs> yeah uh patternless blackhead you guys see that thing had no bands or anything it was just like a couple little squiggles on it or something pretty crazy Where was had this a blackhead but in in australia in australia found a wild patternless blackhead the That's weird cool. thing is yeah. where they found it in that region, it shouldn't, it's really kind of a honey gold color, which is unusual. You'd think it'd be more, you know, grayish white, like most yeah. Westerns. Some kind but of mutant. Know. Yeah. There's definitely it's a something. Morph. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Didn't Iper yeah. say that the, uh, the one was in that area were also like had a similar pattern thing going on. I know um, that was probably just a one-off blackhead, but he did mention something about, the Woma pythons in that area having a really funky pattern too. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I, I've I found a Woma up there close, a little bit further north, but it looked like a nice, you know, typical Woma. But there are some populations of Womas that are kind of bluish and and have not a really well defined pattern. Some of those southwestern Womas, maybe, but um, or the South Australian Womas are pretty uh, low pattern. But yeah, pretty. Interesting. Anyway, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I'm. It, what's what's really cool is they just let it on its way. They didn't try to collect it and breed it and sell a, sell a new patternless morph. But I don't I don't know why you'd be interested in that anyway, because that's half the appeal of the blackheads and womas are those nice bands that they got, especially the westerns. And this also brings it closer to our topic of conversation for the night that Aspidites morphs are a terrible idea. <laughs> it's like it's like the idea of scrub python morphs. Like that is the worst thing that would ever happen to that group of snakes, because <laughs> the 
the kind of nutritional requirements to be successful, like blackheads and womas, are just completely at odds with the general morph breeder, raise them like crazy, power feed them and breed them. You were like, an albino scrub python, that project would die so fast. Like, because a bunch of people like trying to pump these things up, and it's like it's not going to go well. And yeah. Aspidite, I mean, blackhead, it's it would be a tough, tough thing. And that seems to be the case. I mean, there there are some, uh, you know, albino blackheads, and you don't do you, see a lot do of you, those around. <laughs> do you think if Do you think if they found like some uh, like like uh, like some albino barnex or something like that, that that would like change the 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 scrub? Like people like would want to start keeping them rather than just like this niche niche community of scrub keepers. Like if if a morph like 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 a uh, like a true out morph like that showed up. I hope not. I, I, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it might change not, it for the for the moment. Like you might have somebody yeah. throwing big money at it, but they're probably not going to be successful unless they've they been grow, breeding they barnacks for years or something. Mean yeah. as shit and trying to kill them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's not. They, I hope they don't ever achieve mass appeal. Sort of. <laughs> no. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, the biggest like, benefit would be that the albinos would be blind. So maybe they wouldn't be as mean. <laughs> they couldn't see. I'm, I'm continually or amazed. that they would just swipe at anything. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm continually amazed at this like crazy fad of like white lip pythons being mm. the it snake you have to get. It's like, as a guy that's had white lips for 30 <laughs> years and has a bunch of them now, like they suck. Yeah. Like, <laughs> these people are paying $5,000 for a Southern white lip. It's like that. I can't even imagine the crushing disappointment <laughs> and regret. Once you get them. It's going to, Latch Crap onto on you, kiss yeah. down your arm, and it's going to hate you for your entire life, generally speaking. Yeah. It's like, yeah, they're iridescent, but they're complete lunatics for the most part. Yeah. Like, I, when not, before I got into carpets, I wanted some black face white lips because I just thought they were great looking. And then I find, I, did, I, did, I couldn't find any, and, and I ended up you know down into carpets. And after I figured stuff out, I was like, oh, man, thank God I didn't do that. Dodge <laughs> the bullet. I yeah. it was horrible. I literally just cleaned my white lip pythons 10 minutes before I, I came in and logged into this. I was just the last thing in the room I clean and they are usually I have to do the cleaning feed where you here's a little rat. Why don't you eat that rat? Cause I, I can get in here and change his water really fast. It just, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's amazing how many people had to talk out of buying ring pythons when I had those things for sale. Mm -hmm. Like, Oh, are they easy to handle. What's the care on these guys? I'm like, no, they're psychotic and they <laughs> yeah. pee everywhere and, and they're, the, they're the, never going to be nice. And they're going to die. If you let them dry out. But if so you, how many do you want? <laughs> they're the undisputed heavyweight champions of dropping dead for no reason. Ring <laughs> pythons. Or killing their mate, right? Ryan right? Young posts pictures of them, and they look amazing. Yeah. And people are like, oh, especially oh, his babies. Yeah. yeah, the adults. Yeah, yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Ryan's forty minutes away. He's one of my best friends. He can keep them things. I'll yeah. never. <laughs> really people. I don't even care. I've tried like three different times. It's like they just they just drop dead for no reason. You're trying to be so particular about because they need high humidity, and mm -hmm. and they're one of those snakes like white lips that likes wallowing in their own filth. They just like in a mucky, half wet, gross, stinky. That's what they they like. And mm -hmm. even when you get this, I, yeah, the white lips. Like, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know why I put up with them. It's like I, I don't like these snakes. Why do I? I feel like I have to have them almost. You're a, you're yeah. a glutton for punishment. <laughs> well, on the book front, we uh, counted up all the the 
uh, photograph suppliers, what, what, the contributors, <laughs> whatever wow. you want to call them. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a hefty list. Like there's a yeah, lot of I people, bet. including uh, Casey. Casey. <laughs> yep. Yeah. For God's sakes, yeah. I see <laughs> Nick asking for more pictures for like months after I thought pictures were done. <laughs> it's usually, you're trying to like plug a hole here and there. Yeah. 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 Oh, I oh, I totally get it. I'm I gotta take some pictures. Time. I gotta take some pictures of a scarred up snake tonight. For the there's a. It's like two thirds of an empty page where you're talking about like feeding live versus frozen. I'm like, I got a snake that's got half a tail. That would yeah. be yeah. tell that story and take a good picture. It's you know, like a We've 12 got year a, old, but got a few uh, wild uh, animals that have <laughs> stubby tails in the book as well from getting chomped yes. on. It's yeah, oh, that's, uh, it happens. I got a blackhead from a, a blackhead from Mount Carbine that has no tail. It's got like yeah. a half an inch of tail and like a five foot snake. God. And it. It's obviously like a very old injury because it's super well healed, but it's got nothing, like mm. nothing at all. It's just this Man. nub. Yeah. It's like something bit its tail off completely. Yeah. It was doing fine. Yeah, it's hard out there for a snake, I think. <laughs> and well, in captivity, you got plenty of people leaving, you know, rats in the cage overnight or something, and they just assume that it's been eaten. And then, yeah, you can have a poor outcome that way, too. But, Don't but eat yeah. into the cloaca. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a it was a, a hefty list of people, so we appreciate the the contributors, and we're uh, we're excited to get this thing done. It's going to be it's a it's a. Well, uh, I just received two more pictures of the book right before yeah. this. But I think it's actually all right because alphabetically it would be the dead last thing alphabetically. Mm. So you could just like stick it on the end and not change anything because it yeah. literally, uh, but I think I have to include those. It's, yeah. I'm, I'm just, out. I'm worried there's going to be a huge delay from the printer and we're going to be all excited because we sent it off and then Stop everybody's going to be ready and we'll be like, yeah, it's I, got a 12 dumb. month like, delay. I'd like people to see it sooner rather than later, but I'm excited to not have to work yeah. on it. Yeah, you gotta be... wish that COVID mojo right out, bro. <laughs> right. You gotta stop. You can't gotta, can't yeah. be bringing that bad energy into the <laughs> I car. Quite a bit, I just got over COVID like a week ago. I got Did a lot you? of done because well, you're not wasn't really that sick. So yeah, yeah. It didn't so, get you I, good then. No, it was absolutely the greatest non-event ever. It's yeah. not even the worst cold I've had in the last couple of years. Like if I hadn't had a test just sitting there, I would have just gone to the gym that day. I was that mild. Mm-hmm. It, was like, it was like my back hurts more than usually and it usually hurts a little it was like this woke up with a more stiff back and a tickle in my throat and it never really got to be more than that but that's good yeah i i, I had like i don't know if it was just a bad week but i had like a mild headache and and like you know i'm old so like i'm a little sore when i get out of bed and i'm like uh-oh, uh-oh. you're not as old as me are you uh 45 <laughs> Oh yeah, no, I'll be fifty this year, man. Yeah, I'm, see, okay. I'm, yeah. Like, I'm like getting mail from AARP trying to. <laughs> right I'm AARP like, hey, don't you want to join our club of old people? Yeah. Fucking, you get <laughs> discounts, Nick. Do that shit. There's no, there's no shame it. in the geriatric <laughs> game. They're after me. Like I'm that old now. They're trying to recruit me. Yeah, the big five zero. Yeah. Went to a new gym for the first day today, and I'm like, I am the oldest person here. Like, <laughs> and there's a lot of people, and I'm like, I am now the old guy at the gym. Oh my god! Uh, well, that gives you the freedom to stand naked in the locker room and you know, 
apply talc to various areas. Yeah, you'd be the sauna man. Yeah. You sound like you old been, man in the sauna. It's, Justin sounds it's like he was scarred by an older man in a, in a, in a, in a gym bathroom. Well, there's I mean, always, any, there's, yeah, some there's always so, an old dude. Like, totally not ashamed of his <laughs> yep. what Strutting around. Like, are just old, old saggy balls just hitting head. them in the knees. They've just oh, they've yeah. just given <laughs> given up any cares that they ever I had. Just want to start a conversation with you is like, dude, you're naked. What are you doing? <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah. That's oh. that's what happens when you turn fifty. So all right, all right, <laughs> all right. I'm gonna do this okay. and say we probably ought to get to the fight because we could <laughs> yeah, probably spend the next out. hour just cutting up. But. All right, all right. Well, we're, we're Casey's happy. over here ready to go, dude. <laughs> yeah. Look at him. He's poised. He's focused. He, he looks like he's notes. ready to pounce. Yeah, he's yeah. he's ready to go. Well, um, we'll we'll just have you guys. I mean, if you don't know Casey Cannon and Nick Mutton, then oh you know, yeah, introduce lived under yourself. A rock, but yeah, well, let's let, have you guys let them. Yeah, give your give a short introduction. <laughs> this is the part where Nick tells everyone he's written like seven books and all that stuff, and I'm like, <laughs> I am Casey. I work with Brettles, and I like am trying to breed the Bolans at Canova right now, and. <laughs> Yeah, how's I've been that? to Australia a couple times, or one time, yeah. just a couple different parts of it. How, how's the cage coming along? Um, the, we're going to have plans Luna. for it done, uh, hopefully this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a pretty interesting idea yeah. where they wouldn't let me like roll it out into the cold area and like roll it back in like <laughs> uh-huh. I was telling them to. So they're like, no, let's just get this whole like cooling system under the, air, under, uh, the <laughs> top layer of it. The bottom mm-hmm. layer of it's going to have like nothing but hides it's going to be like a beehive of just if this female wants to do this kind of nest box she'll do this if she wants anything else she's going to have that option you know yeah so just trying to have as many uh visual barriers in there as possible as much cover as possible so Mm -hmm. whatever this female decides she wants in like two or three years she can have it. So that's she'll kind of the plan. She'll tell you what mess box parameters are right by if you give a bunch of options, still figure out which one is the one that has the properties. Yeah. But at the same time, there's a guy in Germany right now. He breeds these things in aquariums. Really? He has them in giant glass aquariums, which is the perfect cage for them because they leak heat. It's what <laughs> yeah. you need. You need something where they can heat up yeah. and then get off, cool and down. then the heat just dissipates off their body. Hmm. Yeah, so. it's, there's always some dude with some aquariums doing something you just like <laughs> it would never work. But yeah, way, 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 way back in the day, like one of the first guys to breed white lip pythons, they were in big fish tanks, and he never cleaned them. Like literally <laughs> never. And when they I have like never, tunnels and stuff running underneath. Yeah, them, like, there's just this layer of substrate, and eventually there'd be so much shit and shed skins and detritus on that. He just like sprinkle another layer of substrate on top of it, like a compost, <laughs> and they're just. This layers and they were just burrowing around in the filth and it's like and they were breeding. Like, it's like, <laughs> yeah. Yep. yeah, I mean this guy's literally aquariums pile. with newspaper ground and they have like a heat pad. They don't even have bulbs. Wow. <laughs> like a That's dog cool. heat pad looking thing. And he's bred them three times. Is this what's his name? Uh this is uh this is Hunter Franz. Yeah, I think his yeah. name's like Volker Franz in Germany. Uh-huh. But you see a picture of his setup, it's aquariums. Really? Yeah, like, that's interesting. It's everything they tell you that. not to keep a python yeah, in right. because it leaks heat, uh-huh. which is exactly what you want with a Boland's python. <laughs> yeah. Huh. That's that's interesting. Well, and and um, Casey's been on our show before. We've had him here, and we had a great debate with him uh, a few few months back. It's been a little while, so we're happy to have him back. And um, welcome to the show. <laughs> mm-hmm. How about you, Nick? Yeah, thanks. 
Uh, my name's Nick. I keep a few carpets and <laughs> freedom sometimes. And yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. Again, if, <laughs> if you don't know Nick, then you've been like, living under yeah, that. And, and yeah. I talk too much quite frequently. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A, a conversation with Nick on the phone is never a short one, but <laughs> it's so bad that like people, like, you know, people don't answer the phone because they know they're never going to get off the phone. <laughs> like I know you're, I have to like get to get some people to answer the phone. I have to like preface it. Like, honestly, I will keep it to like brief. I'll promise yeah. it'll be like 10 minutes. It's like, otherwise, you know, it's just going to rambling on. Yeah. All right. Well, today these two Titans are going to fight about power feeding. Um, and maybe, you know, that's not the best term for it. Maybe that's clickbaity. I don't know. You guys can judge, but we're going to kind of go over, you know, the amount you're feeding your animals and things like that. So um, we'll go ahead and do the customary coin toss. Uh, who, who wants to call it? We got Ooh, is age before a, beauty I, I, or <laughs> heads. Okay. okay, there, there it, it, is. Is. it is. He called it, and it is head. So you get, to, you get to pick the topic and and pick whether you want to go first or let Nick lead you out. <clears throat> so I guess I'm going to be defending uh, frequent feeding. Okay. Okay. At least okay. for Thank the first you. part of a snake's life. Uh huh. And I guess uh, I guess we'll get started. Do you, Do you want to go you, first? You, you want to let Nick go first? Yeah. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Nick. Okay. <laughs> so you got the, why power feeding or, or frequent feeding is not the best idea. Uh, it's a terrible idea. Uh, <laughs> all right. It, there we go. It is an idea and a practice that it lets, if we're just all being honest, is born virtually entirely out of greed and impatience. Um, the idea that people somehow have gotten so used to this as a concept that they generally genuinely think that snakes breed at two years old and that that's a normal thing when that is so not normal. Like, I mean, everybody here has found snakes in the wild. I mean, even pythons in the wild. And what you invariably find is a, an old ass snake. That's not very big with a giant head because it's taken you know a long time to get to that size. And these things are not breeding at 18 months old. They're certainly not breeding at six months old. They're probably not breeding at, you know, four years old. And there is a cost associated with overfeeding. Uh, and that is always shortened life expectancy. And you see time and time and time again, and there's mountains of evidence that show this, that when you burn a candle at both ends, i.e. in this case, the candle is your metabolism, you burn it up twice mm -hmm. as fast. Sure. If you look at, you know, what is the, and it's all calories in calories out. If you look at like all dogs are genetically almost the same thing. There's really no genetic difference between breeds of dogs. It's all cosmetic. But what's the longest lived dog breed? Chihuahua, which coincidentally is the smallest, has eaten the least amount of food. And what is the shortest lived dog breed? Oh, a Great Dane, which only lives like six years because it's the tallest, one of the biggest breeds. That's not accidental. That is not, you know, the faster, the more you consume in terms of calories, the higher your metabolic rate, the sooner you die. Uh, that's why bowhead whales in the high Arctic can live 200 years as a vertebrate, but they live in cold water and their metabolism is super duper slow as a result. And it extends life. And why tortoises live 200 years, can live, you know, 150, 200 years. Um, okay. Well, it, it, Casey, what you got, uh, 
I uh, think Nick just shaved a couple years off my life because I'm a fat ass. <laughs> oh, <no>. oh god. <laughs> so, I do think when it comes to raising pythons, there is a difference between the okay, we're going to have a really frequent uh, feeding its entire life. In other words, we keep these adult snakes on full feeding schedules. You know, they're eating once every week, every, you know, eight days or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's clearly bad. There is no way to argue that feeding your adult python once a week to get it super fat is beneficial to them. Yeah. That being said, there have been, you know, a few studies, especially ones with uh, Dr. Richard Shine looking at uh, water pythons, Mm -hmm. where he's been able to track how quickly they grow in nature through, uh, you know, capture release studies. And he's found that during the very best years, uh, you know, the years that have the highest amount of rainwater uh, falling down and the highest amount of rats growing, you can have animals reaching uh, most of what I saw was 140 centimeters when 140 to 160 centimeters for females when adult size, in other words, the area where growth completely slows down, which mm-hmm. is about 170, 180 centimeters, but 80% of that's achieved in two years. Mm-hmm. So in other words, these snakes are hitting pretty darn close to small adult size in two years on this one capture and release study. Didn't there have been other studies by uh, Daniel Natouche where they're testing, they're checking the growth of green tree pythons out in the iron rages mm-hmm. and most of their growth estimation says they're reaching adult size for males at about two and a half females, three to three and a half years. Yeah. So I don't know if in captivity, if we were to shave that down by say a year and then massively slow down on feeding, if that would cause a huge amount of uh, loss of lifespan. Yeah. You know? I, that's the, the, Golden spoon hypothesis, right? Where, yes, where, the golden know, the, spoon paper. The ones that were uh, that were that had a better year. They they actually produced more eggs when they were adults, and they um, lived. They grew faster their entire life. Yeah, that was a big thing. Yeah. Is the the snakes that were eating the most in their first year of growth were more likely. Well, they were they were growing faster for their entire lifespan. Mm-hmm. You literally had two year old snakes that were born during the very best of years that were larger than nine-year-old females. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and they tracked them, you know, successive years, right? Wasn't that like a 12 year study or something? It was, it was ridiculous. a 13 year like, study yeah. from what I saw. Yeah. Pretty crazy. So one thing you can't really quantify is the effects on lifespan. You can, you can easily see a scenario where in evolutionary terms, that's rewarded because mm-hmm. evolution, nature doesn't care how long you live. What matters <laughs> is how many copies of yourself you put out in the environment that's what defines success how much of your genes get out there so the animal that produces you know four clutches in back-to-back years makes 80 copies of themselves and dies in year five six when they're six years old is more successful than the snake that lives 25 years and only lays three clutches in that time because it it was ultimately more successful so nature doesn't really care about this other aspect longevity which we in theory, I would hope care about in, in a captive setting. Uh, you know, it's like, what's best for, I mean, if we are looking at early reproduction and heavy feeding to get reproduction going and cranking up a maximum amount of animals, that's fine. If you look at these animals purely as a commodity and you don't care about 
anything else. If it's just turning and burning, how many babies can I, you know, breed these things like you're breeding rodents? Like, you know, I cycle my mice out after six months because they're of no use to me. It's like they're just like, you don't care. You're just breeding them until they're until they're no good at breeding anymore. And then you feed them to something. If that mindset is applied, then you can produce more animals that way. But is that something we should aspire to? I would argue I would argue we should not. That it's, there should be more to herpetoculture than just purely crank out as many snakes as you can, as fast as you possibly can. Yeah, uh, I don't. And See, I, and I, I can agree with that. But if we come down to using longevity as a, you know, a, a measuring stick, a source of, uh, you know, if I had success or not, there's multiple studies on mice that say if you maintain an animal at basically just above starvation that mouse is going to live longer than any other mouse. they're like almost double lifespan mm-hmm. but you have to maintain them at just above starving to death from what i understand from a lot of these papers and you see that have, i've got that paper pulled up in case i needed it for this argument <laughs> it's actually Hossein and hales 2005 <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and i mean but, you see that in you know mammals and humans too you can you, be you know, you can have a woman that's 14% body fat. She's going to stop menstruating at that point, you know? Mm-hmm. So you can say, oh, yeah, you'll live forever. You won't ever be able to reproduce. <laughs> so it's almost an inverse of this where, okay, you can breed much faster when you're fatter, or you can live forever and never reproduce. That's tricky with reptiles. Are we comparing apples to oranges, you know, when you're talking about, you know, studies in mammals and things like that? Or, you know, I maybe uh, here's some thoughts on that, you know, if if, because I mean, pythons, which is I think what this topic is kind of revolving around a little bit where we have kind of the most experience as a group. are, are designed to kind of sit around. They're not out there lifting weights or, you know, that kind of thing. They're, wow. they're designed to sit and in ambush and catch food when it comes along. So, you know, Nick snake, Nick snakes are weightlifters. Yeah. <laughs> I know that. I know that. So, so you know, can you, can, is, is that a valid comparison, I guess, you know, to say that a, a mammal that doesn't eat a lot lives longer, but I don't know how that would apply to a snake. Uh, I mean, the whole argument, the central point of the argument is, you know, the effects of food on metabolism and the, and it's mm-hmm. all that. And the reptile, a cold-blooded ectothermic metabolism is a very different thing than a mammal. So uh, mm-hmm. I think you could probably speak to in broad, in the broadest of terms that you see similarities in, the, in this, but it's not going to be exactly the same in mammal. It's not going to translate exactly, I wouldn't think. Yeah. Well, and it, it's interesting too. it kind of to your point, Nick, is like when we talk about this, we talk about the extremes. Either you feed it excessive amounts of food or you feed it almost no food at all just to barely keep it alive. And I and I don't think most people even, you know, it, most snake keepers, if they're using the ad, you know, the the advantageous, um, you know, biology of snakes are doing those two things, you know, that they're, they're probably feeding less, but that snake doesn't need a whole lot. Right. Uh, or it could take more, but, and as long as you balance that out, it kind of depends on the minutia of how you do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to it. Some of these things are feed very seasonally. Uh, and so you have kind of a boom and bust cycle with food. So you, they're eating a lot, not necessarily power feeding, but they're eating a lot of food in some months of the year. And then get long stretches where it's very little and very meager. 
uh, what they're able to get. And that annual food cycle also obviously affects their reproductive cycle because you, know, you want to, uh, those two things are also very closely linked. Casey, you have to jump in here. Are you still there? I, yeah, I'm I'll, still here. I don't think okay. my camera's working for some yeah, reason. All I see that is kind of weird. I saw all I see is the naked Nick cover. So I'm like, is he there? Is he there? So I guess my, my thoughts with that would be, uh, we'll go to carpet pythons because we all know carpet pythons pretty well. A male carpet python, you know, let alone females, male carpet pythons will breed at 600 grams. Almost all of them, Brettles pythons, maybe more like 750. That's about where mine seem to start and where I kind of maintain them at. So mm-hmm. I guess my question when you comes to how fast you can grow something up, you can get something to 750 grams pretty quickly. I mean, I'd say you could do it in 12 to 14 months without even quote unquote power feeding that much. So that's a good point in that. And it's totally linked to an argument, you know, with power feeding and how much you should feed is that people, the reason they feed a lot mostly these days is they want snakes to reproduce but they miss, they completely conflate a bunch of different things uh, with regards to their expectations of size and growth for these animals. They invariably conflate maximum size, record size with adult size when those are completely different things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, this is, you know, people ask me, I, I bred Wamina scrub pythons, which are just pretty distinct form. They're not, they're maybe a touch smaller than some of the other stuff, but maybe not. Like I, I, I examined in, some, in a museum hopping trip ahead of one that was, it had to have been 13, 14 foot. It was huge. It was a <laughs> giant preserved head. At any rate, uh, people see, they read like, oh, well, barnex scrub pythons can get 14 feet long. And they think barnex scrub pythons need to be 14 feet long. And they tend to feed to their expectations of size. And then eventually, it's like, I've seen a lot of 14-foot scrub pythons. You know what I've never seen? A 14-foot scrub python on a clutch of eggs. Never seen it. <laughs> seen a lot of big ones. Never seen one. Seen a whole lot of eight-foot ones on eggs, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, that Mina, she's laid two years in a row, might lay a third year in a row, and the snake is maybe seven feet long. Yeah. Does great, bounces back. When you get to that upper size limit, they it's not a good thing, necessarily. You end mm-hmm. up with uh, less frequent reproduction, and it's... You know, the animals that breed the best are not the super giant ones. <laughs> it's like, yeah. a, uh, well, that was, life. that was at, uh, arboreal symposium where, uh, Daniel Natouche kind of dropped the bomb on green tree python breeders where in the, you know, the book said they had to be a thousand grams to oh, breed. Okay. And he's like, I've, I've never They're seen like one in the wild. Grams. Yeah, exactly. That was, like, awkward, that was an awkward, I was there. <laughs> I was the second to yeah. last speaker. I sat in the audience and Daniel spoke last. And all the chondro luminaries were all there. Trooper Walsh was there. Eugene was there. Great bunch of guys. Rico. Greg yeah. was there. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and they're like, just, you could just see them like just looking and grasping at straws for any, any plausible reason why they, maybe you just weren't finding the really big ones because they were using the habitat differently. It's like, no, they don't <laughs> exist. That's, yeah. It's like, I finally like, we all have that sort of inner bullshit detector kind of thing. And it's like, mm. it was just going, flashing lights were going off my head i just like stood up and blurted this out i'm like i go have any of you ever even tried to breed a female that was under 500 grams and one he's not really a factor these days in the condor community but at the time he was you know one of those guys and he just like kind of 
a little bit abrasively, frankly, is like, have, did that, well, have you? And I'm like, yes, as a matter of fact, I did. <laughs> and then I went on to detail how I bred a pair of five-year-old Wamina chondros, uh, and the female weighed 359 grams, and the male weighed 247 grams, <laughs> resulting in nine eggs, 100% fertility. And the female bounced right back, uh, ultimately died of cancer at like 13 or 14 years old after having laid five pledges of eggs. And even at that age, after all that, weighed about 500 grams on the mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like they're not, they're little tiny snakes. Yeah. And if you feed yeah. them to this expectation of them need to be a thousand grams to breed, it's like, that's, that's more than double anything they should ever be. And it's like, and you wonder why they lay 47 eggs, only two hatch and the snake's dead by its eighth birthday. Cause it was <laughs> never, it's the snake equivalent of like a 400 pound human. It's not supposed to be that big. And there's a cost associated with that and it kills them. And they never seem to figure that out, mm-hmm. but it's, because it's a little snake yeah it's like you no snake is going to is a, no snake will ever evolve that lays more eggs than it can actually wrap around and protect like you see these condor clutches like 50 eggs it's like there's just eggs everywhere it's like that's those eggs wouldn't hatch it's they're little you know it, it, okay yeah the people too much but as, <laughs> as a group it fundamentally misunderstands or at least that's changing I, I, think so. I wish I could have been there when Daniel Natouche laid that down in that room. God <laughs> damn, I great. bet that was amazing. That's but it was like I think it was like a thousand and five. It was just a smidge yeah. over a thousand animals. And out of all that, there were like three that were over a thousand grams. Oh and just God. barely over. Yeah, yeah. right. And they might have been a hundred years old. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Find that that one animal that wins the lottery and it just lives in some secluded valley where there's just a weirdly abundant ecosystem and they've got more food and they just eventually get that big after a long enough period of time. But the average was invariably under 500 grams for females and males, a hundred grams smaller. Mm-hmm. Little Casey, tiny you got, you got comment around that? Well, no, I mean, he's completely right about that. And I was going to bring up uh, green tree pythons where, you know, people say, Oh, you shouldn't breed until they're 1500 grams. And then again, you wonder why they die when they're 10 years old. It's because their heart's literally beating to a system that's five times bigger than it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or prolapse but, or all these yeah. other things that happens to them. And even like, if, but again, if you get, say, you find out they breed at 340 grams or whatever, that's actually a big one from the studies I've seen. Mm-hmm. Does it matter if they get to be that size at two and a half years old and you just keep them there? Right. So is that a problem? I don't. That's one that I think you have to, no one's really actually looked at it. That's uh, doing these sorts of studies and like, because it's a long-term thing and like, it's probably hard to get somebody to do that, to invest like 15 years into some captive snakes and feeding them and breeding them and just tracking who lived, you know, in different groups and with different feeding regimens and who hit maturity first and who, how long they lived and, and, and and doing that, I think it would be very insightful. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah. I don't know. I just, I just there see was a study on that. children's pythons. They did at a university of West Sydney where they gave, uh, they had a control group that was fed 10%, you know, offered 10% of its body weight every week. And another group that was offered up to 30% of its body weight every week for a year, Ooh. which <laughs> they actually did. They were very, uh, careful to self-regulate, you know, if mm-hmm. you want to use, uh, anthropomorphic terms like that. Mm-hmm. The 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 so, researchers were or the no no the snakes were the snakes. So in other words, self-regulated okay. yeah so I, I, I just still ended up ask. averaging out where they were only eating like sixteen and a half percent of their body weight 
But they yeah. got these snakes up to breeding size where they were actually locking up in 12 months. Mm-hmm. Just doing that. Anteresia as a rule might be an anomaly in that some of the sort of macro trends you see with breed, keeping and breeding pythons don't seem to apply to them. And I think it's because they're kind of a bottom of the food chain sort of thing. And the, the lower you are in the food chain, the generally the higher reproductive output because most of your babies get eaten by other stuff. And whereas like you're never going to get 13 years of consecutive back-to-back clutches from a scrub python, 13 years in a row with good fertility, but I've done it with Stimson's pythons, 13 years running. And it was never less than 10 and never more than 13 eggs mm-hmm. every year. I finally just retired the female. I felt bad breeding her anymore. It was, they bounced back super fast. I had a, a children's python that double clutched. It laid a clutch of 12 and then a clutch of 13, three and a half months or three and a half, four months apart. Uh, and bounce, I mean, and bred the next year again, like they seem to be, they bounce back faster than anything I've ever seen. Whereas a lot of this other stuff, uh, particularly the less commonly bred species, having bred a lot of that kind of stuff, it's almost depressing. But the reality is if you get three or four clutches out of a female in its entire life, that's about all you can realistically hope for. You're not going to get nine clutches out of a female white lip or a scrub python. It just doesn't seem to work that way. If you get three or four, if you got five, you've done fantastic. You shouldn't expect that they're going to breed every year, every other year into perpetuity. It doesn't ever seem to work out like that Mm -hmm. uh, for the most part. So I don't know. I'd rather take a slower attack with feeding and have them be around for a while than just burn them out fast. Um, So I have a lot of different snakes. Justin? (laughs) <laughs> I was Casey? just going to say, I mean, there's, there's studies on, you know, how, how much uh, a snake needs to, you know, how much energy it needs, what, what size, you know, how many meals it needs to just perform its basic functions. And I think it didn't, uh, Gavin Bedford do some of that work on with his PhD thesis or dissertation. I thought I saw something in there about you know like 20 20 mice for a stimson's python just to kind of do do normal functions or something yeah i mean i guess that's i you know where they're seasonal feeders i imagine they probably don't pass up a meal you know like i mean that's that's kind of an ingrained thing like you see that in green tree pythons they're always sitting out waiting for a meal you'll see that in the wild during you know times doesn't seem like they are very successful very often, but they'll, they'll take a meal when it comes. So, I mean, if, if you've got an explosion of rodent populations or whatever, and they're, and they're eating as many as they can catch or whatever, you know, can, can a wild snake get obese? <laughs> you get, there are some examples with boids and stuff that are like that in the extreme uh, to one with carpets is Isle of St. Francis. Uh, where you have, there's the only thing to eat is mutton birds, ironically. Uh, and the birds nest in mass. So for like a short window of time, there is an unfathomable number of freshly hatched mutton bird chicks. I don't know how big a mutton bird is or it's chicks, but the baby, these snakes just gorge themselves for a, during the nesting season and then basically starve until the nest nesting season. There's just nothing else on this tiny Island. And it's this extreme boomer bust. And somehow that works. You have a dwarf carpet, but that works. And the similar thing happens in some of the islands off of Belize with boas. I've got some crawl key boas and things, and they are, and these things will reproduce it, you know, three feet long. And they're only going to have like four or five babies, but they live on an island that is 
basically a few mangrove trees that stick up and go underwater at high tide. There's almost nothing there. And the only thing there is is a seasonal availability of birds. So they're just adapted to eat, to gorge themselves and then wait until the next, you know, the next season. So that, that can work. I don't know how long those populations, what their average life expectancy is, but there are those, those situations in the wild where you see that extreme sort of amount of food, you know, for a short window and then long periods of, of nothing. Yeah. Uh, according to Wikipedia, the mutton bird chicks fledge at 900 grams. So somewhere between, you know, well, yeah, the adults are pretty, pretty huge, but yeah, the, the bait, when they fledge, they're 900 grams. So I don't know, you know, they, and, they grow a bit. And I guess maybe the, the other part of this is, is are, are we conflating what wild caught animals do versus what, you know, what, what, uh, you know, what our captive animals are doing and, and, is that a fair, is that a fair comparison or should it be the same? Should it be looked at exactly the same way? That's a, that's an excellent point. Um, in it, not to plug this new book, Justin and I have got coming out, but there's a plug away, Nick. Well, no, I mean, I, I'd written on domestication in an earlier, you know, some years ago. And so there's a pretty robust discussion of, uh, domestication and what happens with that. And the, the reality basically to summarize a whole lot of pages is that the animals we have in captivity, particularly things like carpet pythons that are multiple generation after multi-generation captive bred, are not the same as their wild forebears. Like they are, we have changed them to be better at being captives. So you start to see earlier reproduction, you know, at smaller sizes. These things are really common when you domesticate any species. And so maybe the rules are not exactly the same because we are, I mean, you know, if you had a clutch of wild carpet pythons that came out of the wild, your odds of any one of them as a hatchling taking a domesticated mouse as a first meal is probably pretty low. But your average jungle carpet that's like seven generations removed from that, it's pretty good because the ones that insisted on lizards didn't live to pass their genes along. They're really, look at Western hognose snakes. They come out of the egg and the day they leave the egg, they eat frozen mouse pinkies, which is the most unnatural thing they could possibly do. Because the ones that were looking for toads and lizards didn't live to pass their genes along. So we have just steered this towards, you know, these things that we find beneficial in a captive sense. So I guess with some of these lineages, it, that is a bigger, you know, and probably why we're talking about scrub pythons being, you know, difficult. It's because they don't have that long captive lineage. You're starting from ground zero, wild caught snakes. Yeah. If you're lucky, wild caught snakes that were imported when they were babies but that's it. That's the best you can do. They don't have any domesticated sort of properties. Whereas like, you know, things like a carpet Python are, are, you know, much further down that track and things like a ball Python is, is completely domesticated at this point. So Casey, what do you think? Is that, is that a helping, a helping or a hurting your point? I mean, I don't really know if you can say it's helping or hurting either point. I mean, Nick already brought up at one point, there are ball pythons that, People who have a very, very rapid, probably too rapid feeding response or feeding schedule on those, you can breed them at like what forty three days is the is the current record for a male breeding. What forty three yeah, I mean, days? Forty three days. What these guys are doing though, and it's become I think unfortunate, is they have taken they have figured out that if you feed a ball python baby a rat pinky. Every single solitary day, seven days a week, 30 days a month, rat pinky, rat pinky, rat pinky, every single day, 
they'll grow like at this insane rate where there's just this constant influx of calories. But because the rat pinky is fairly small, it doesn't trigger frequent shed cycles because it doesn't really stretch the abdominal wall out and trigger a shed. So they just eat like crazy, grow like weeds, but don't keep going into shed, which would then take them out of commission for eating for a couple of weeks. And you end up with this ridiculous growth rate hmm. and the onset of reproduction. However, there's a commensurate rise in ball python people complaining about rectal prolapses. Shocker. Because if you've bred a lot of snakes, like all of us have, you've probably stumbled onto this like, huh, if you feed a lot of pinkies, your odds of the animal prolapsing is exponentially higher than if you're feeding it something with fur. And we're talking about rectal prolapses in the snakes, right? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Now we're sharing too much. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you see, I mean, what are the species? There are some species, obviously, where you're kind of stuck feeding pinkies because they're so small. What are you going to feed a, a baby mm -hmm. chondro other than a pinky? Yeah. A lizard? I mean, you're, pre you're pretty much stuck because of their size. But feeding pinkies the things that don't need to eat pinkies, like I never understand the, the carpet python people, and those are my, that's my community. This obsession with feeding rat pinkies, it's like it's nutritionally kind of a downgrade yeah. and it and it increases your rectal prolapse risk. Every time you'll see somebody on Facebook or whatever group and they're complaining they have a prolapse, ask them what they'll feed it. And they will always say rat pinkies. It's, mm. I don't know why. I have no explanation for why that's the case, but it is the case. It's not the kind of thing like you'd see if you have a clutch here or there, but if you've got hundreds of clutches and thousands and thousands you get enough data you start to see that it's always those ones that have that problem and now i'm starting to see it in ball python people when you never did because they've got this rat pinky a day philosophy going and um, yeah sounds like a good project for uh, dr zach to give a student or something <laughs> yeah yeah compare rat pinky feeders with uh you know uh, yeah, crude and talking about feces and everything but my basic rule of thumb is like it, if what if you feed a carpet or whatever a rat pinky or anything a pinky it can't even make a proper shit it just makes a skid mark on the side of its tub mm. and basically they get pinkies give your snake diarrhea that's just the truth of it and if you know you should basic logic would tell you like if what you're feeding your snake is giving it perpetual diarrhea maybe you shouldn't be feeding it that if you were eating something that was giving you diarrhea constantly, you'd stop eating that thing. I don't know, Nick. I, I've, I've got, I've been feeding chicks like uh, to, to some of my scrubs and that is some nasty skid marky type shit. I like that's have really, to rotate between mice just to keep that's their... That's not really, that's just because there's no hair to bind it together. Yeah, so it just kind yeah, of, it's, oh, it's gross. Man, it's like, yeah, they're, and they're not nice about it. They're all over. <laughs> they they're just like, ah! I feed, a fair of I feed a fair amount of birds because for some of these things, nutritionally, like the macronutrient profile, if you will, of a chicken is more closely approximate what a wild snake would eat yeah. in that birds are inherently, they're reptiles. And so reptiles don't really do the intramuscular fat thing. Mm -hmm. It's all subcutaneous fat. Whereas you, you ever see, you ever had a marbled piece of chicken? <laughs> uh, they don't store fat that way as a reptile and so you end up with they're invariably always lower in fat as and even you know pythons and wild eat mammals they're eating some half dead half starved scraggly looking thing wild rodents and things don't have the luxury of excess body fat hmm. they can't so you're feeding them a leaner prey especially with things like black-headed pythons and things that shouldn't be eating mammals at all really 
mm-hmm. uh, that's a better a better substitute that nutritionally and so i feed my blackheads i rotate in like adult quail mm-hmm. on a regular mm-hmm. basis and mm-hmm. when you have like a, a, a liquor and your rat rack gets plugged up and they have a bunch of like half like skinny and they're all like emaciated those are great i feed those ones up. <laughs> Well, Casey, are you maybe, still there, dude? Yeah, yeah maybe. Uh, yeah, we blackheads. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, the other night, uh, in preparing for this, I had a conversation with uh, Jason Hood, mm-hmm. who is at this point debatably one of the most successful people with blackheads in the country. He feeds his uh, large adult rats, and he has animals from 2004 that are breeding this year. Mm-hmm. So his question's always been, everybody says you're supposed to keep these things super skinny, you're supposed to keep them on this low fat diet, he's more successful than just about anybody with this species. And they're eating large adult rats. I, I found a similar so, thing with uh, the Kuligowski brothers. Den- Denver Kuligowski had, you know, these giant black headed pythons. And I, and I had always heard that too, you know, the, you got to keep them thin or they'll never breed. And I said, well, you know, how, how's your success rate with these? And he's like, they breed every year. You know, like he gets clutches and they hatch out and they're fertile and happy and, and, you know, they, they did very well with blackheads. So, you know, two, two sources that kind of come to the same conclusion. So what, what do you think is, is, uh, there Casey, what, what, what do you think? Has, uh, so how does that... from what Jason said, mm-hmm. and again, I've, I don't own blackheads. I would love to, at some point, mm-hmm. he said that a lot of the ideas about blackheads go back to the nineties where he says everything was fat. Everything was fed this you know, insane feed response or feed uh, regime its entire life. They got completely obese. And that's where a lot of that stuff comes from. He's saying mm-hmm. right now he's gotten animals in that have never bred from other people. He looks at him. He says, yeah, it's because they're seven foot pine snakes. And it's no <laughs> wonder they've never bred. He says, I get them. I start really getting some food to them. And then all of a sudden they start laying eggs. Mm-hmm. You know, his set, you know, from what he said is you can tell when a snake's getting fat. So, you know, when to start slowing down on it, you know, not to feed the snakes in the winter time, you know, to, you know, basically don't let your snakes get fat. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter what his black kids are eating. And I mean, even talking about the K brothers, the K brothers, they broke all the rules as far as pythons <laughs> go. I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen their videos where they're talking about how they fed their stuff. Yeah, they were feeding they, their carpet pythons when they were grew, when they were growing up every like four days, or yeah. no, like four times a week, four days a week. God, and they would they would do up to adult size. It was very extreme. They do food cycling as well. So I, I know with the blackheads, they just feed uh, you know for a few months out of the year, but they would feed like every four or five days, and they'd feed a smaller rat, like not a huge meal, but kind of uh, multiple smaller meals in within the week. And I mean, listen, you can do a lot of cocaine in a short period of time. As long as, long as you don't die, you probably in the in the grand scheme of things, you'll be OK. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, a little crack cocaine never killed anybody. <laughs> OK, I'm just saying, like, I, just I mean, I you know, I I I, I, I I, I listen. I'm Mister Challenge the Norm. Uh, let let's let's make sure that sure. if we're gonna say something is something that that we've tried other things and said like, oh no, it works like this too. It works like that. It works like this. It works like that. None of you know exactly well, what you're saying, but that I mean, that was kind of the question I had for Casey. Is um, do you think you can feed 
like a juvenile snake too much that, to, to make it unhealthy? Or do you think a juvenile can eat as much as it wants and gets to, you know, adult size faster? Kind of like the water python example. Do you think that's kind of applicable to, to all pythons or what, do you, what are your I mean, I don't know. That? There needs to be more studies on it. The sure. ones on Antaresia, which again, Antaresia are like <laughs> the python version of a garter snake. So how, <laughs> like, yeah. how good can it actually be as an example for everything else? But my question would be, you know, kind of going with what you're saying is frequent feeding for the first 12 to 18 months and then just massively slowing down and kind of going to a more typical, we're going to feed it every three or four weeks, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, even with, say, we find out the exact weight a female carpet needs to breed. You know, I know I use the bad weight world that you're not <laughs> supposed to use in the carpet world. But, you know, say they breed it 220 gram or 2200 grams or whatever and then you get them up to that size and you just massively slow them down once they're to that size is that mm-hmm. a problem long term i i don't know will that give there them a signal like you know it, i guess you, you at least have to reach the threshold of you know what uh, that tells the female it's it's okay to breed you know you're getting enough energy to breed but you know where that is it's kind of ill-defined <laughs> i don't know it's hard to yeah. say and I mean, pythons, they're, um, uh, what was the word? Uh, they are capital breeders capital versus breeders, income yeah. breeders mm-hmm. where they need a store of fat to reproduce mm-hmm. because pythons in the wild and most of the time in captivity, I don't know, like about you guys, when my female's building follicles, she doesn't want to eat mm-hmm. for the most yeah. part. Yeah. So, and, it, and it has to be several months before the reproductive it needs cycle. To be like a year before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they've got to have that signal before. What, what do you got body, to say, Nick? <laughs> body fat. I mean, there's also a concept called nutrient density. Um, mm-hmm. And so eating, uh, it, there's more to it than just that. You can eat a hundred gram prey item uh, that is considerably more cal- calorically dense than another hundred gram prey item. Something like an anteresia, especially when they're younger, are le- eating almost entirely a lizard-based diet, and they are going to be way lower in fat, lean. Lizards are not going to have as much. They're going to have a higher ratio of protein and a lower, considerably lower in fat. That will make a difference. Yeah. Well, and our, our N of 1 goes against that, right? That children's python right. we found had a rodent in it. <laughs> well, I mean, that was an adult children's yeah. python. Oh, and you're talking juveniles. Sure. Yeah, it was a yeah. shockingly big rodent, too. Yeah. <laughs> As a, so that that matters and back to the thing with the blackheads and stuff like I I mean my own sample size Jason you know, thinks what he thinks I've talked to him and he's very convinced of his you know of his beliefs for sure uh, my own sample size is obviously a lot smaller but I have never failed to breed blackheads uh, and no I failed last year with the westerns but they bred like 27 times and built follicles and then just reabsorbed them but they might not have even been large enough because, you know, how big does a Western blackhead need to be to lay eggs? Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's yeah. not anywhere written down. <laughs> uh, my Easterns have bred every single time I've ever put them together. And my male is so skinny, he would make a pine snake look robust. The snake <laughs> is like a freaking coach whip. And he's like seven feet of nothing. Uh, and he breeds like you've never seen. The female, most people would say, she looks kind of thin. It's like, really? Because she lays eggs literally every year. Uh, this last clutch four years in a row was the biggest clutch yet. Hmm. Uh, big per se, but bigger than her previous effort. So uh, 
these snakes carry way more body fat than people think. The snake that you don't think mm-hmm. is fat, that you think is lean and mean, is fat as shit if you open it up. <laughs> I have a good friend of mine, I won't mention his name, he had a unfortunate thing, a, a Clastolepis female young adult died. Just no warning, no nothing, it just, oh look, you're dead for no reason, as we've all experienced with keeping snakes, that like, random, inexplicable. He opened it up because he wanted to know why, and this snake even by my own estimations, was lean, mean, in ideal body condition, wasn't overfed, looked like a, I mean, it looked great. And it had so much body fat, you would not even believe the snake could possibly, all the way down, there was just fat. It was at a shocking amount of body fat in what anybody would think might be underweight, if anything. So when you think your snake is fat, it is really fat. If you think your snake is lean, it's probably still fat on the inside. So, that is, you know, when you find wild snakes, it's like they manage to get along just fine and breed and everything and be thin. <laughs> I've seen, I don't know that I've ever found an overweight wild python. Found a lot of scraggly looking, remember that one at the Dorat Road, that blackhead that like, yeah. <laughs> it was like a seven foot thing about as big around as a nickel. Yeah. It was so thin and it just looked so haggard, but Very I bet that's still alive. i will say to that though the brittles that i found in uh, central australia was pretty hefty Hmm. i mean it was uh it it looked like a captive brittles python Mm -hmm. yeah i I think there's plenty of examples of of you know snakes that are good sized and and robust and maybe even on the fat side and and i guess the i guess the the question you know is 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 that beneficial to the animal? Does it give them an advantage over their counterparts? And, you know, something like the shine study looking at water pythons might suggest that there, there could be, you know, an advantage to being larger and, and uh, reaching that larger size earlier on. Well, and, and I mean, you could be talking about years of climate instability, which causes an animal that has built up fat reserves in the wild, just so in case it runs into, you know, a half a decade of, of uh, adverse weather that it can it can you know still feed sparsely but weather that storm with its fat reserves and is that relevant to what what we whoa calm down what we do today <laughs> and, <dogs. Yeah. laughs> and i don't know i will say too this has i know this isn't exactly a wild python every mm-hmm. wild berm i've seen come out of florida is like something Jay Brewer would have raised up. Like <laughs> they they are not skinny when they're coming out of the Everglades. I do appreciate the dig at Jay Brewer though. So. <laughs> <laughs> Points for that one. Bag <laughs> of uh, a lot of us uh, for obvious reasons, but I think with berms in Florida, you've got another factor involved in that they're not supposed to be there. So you have an animal that's yeah, exactly, not in yeah. the state of ecosystem. So it might just work out that the selection of what's available in a place there's not supposed to be a python is pretty advantageous for being a python, so they might have it pretty good there. There's yeah, probably again, I wouldn't use that as an example of a... supposed to be there, right? Yeah. Like, it's probably got a lot of uh, food source because it's got a lot of, like, you know, uh, invasives that don't have natural oh, predators. Yeah. So. yeah, I mean, a, a North American raccoon or a white-tailed deer has no idea what a Burmese python is. So. Right, yeah. right. There's, I mean, the largest population of egyptian of egyptian ibises in the world is in the everglades also that's uh, crazy yeah. well it's all hurricane yeah. andrews they kind of yeah. birds got separate they're not scary because they're birds so we don't talk right. about those mm-hmm. yeah 
So you have this weird, completely made up ecosystem they're trying to restore. It's like, what do you mean? Remember the time the state of Florida released all the peacock bass on purpose? Remember that? Like, it's all choked with non-native plants. It's like there's nothing natural about it left. Yeah. That ship yeah. didn't sail. Have this yeah. giant grievance that there's a big snake there eating. A, it's like it's just it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, it, no, no introduced, no introduced uh, species uh, uh, s- uh, study ever works out great. <laughs> it's all bad. Oh, it's you know, I mean, we take look at all those species that are invasive. We take for granted, and we don't even realize like all the European gray squirrels everywhere. It's mm-hmm. like most people, the only squirrels they've ever seen in their lives are European right. squirrels, and they don't realize that. Like mm-hmm. it's because they just displaced all of our native squirrels, and that's just what a squirrel is and you know yeah yeah but it's not it's very non-threatening so i guess we don't care about squirrels and you know european earthworms that have taken over well we have (laughs) short attention spans now squirrel you know what i mean yeah (laughs) (laughs) getting shorter by the minute it seems yeah Yeah. casey Uh you there do we lose him i don't know Maybe not. He's That's muted. All right. we'll, we'll continue. I'm we'll on continue. mute. So, okay. Sorry. All right, I was all right, just trying right. to click away at it. I can't see you anymore. I, just I know. I don't sure even know what's there. wrong with my camera right yeah. now. It just decided to die. Yeah. I mean, I told you I got this laptop like six hours ago. So I know, and I commented few. like how impressed I was that like you just plugged everything in and it worked because that wouldn't <laughs> be the way it worked for me. It just yours failed like halfway through. I didn't know that. <laughs> hey, at least that. we can hear you. At least yeah, that didn't yeah, go away. Yeah. Yeah. That's all right. We'll check in on you and make sure you're still. Yeah, there was actually a shine paper on uh, reticulated pythons out in Sumatra that I mm-hmm. thought was kind of interesting where um, one, they didn't find any real uh, significant evidence of seasonal feeding at all going on in Sumatra. They seem to be eating about the exact same amount, hmm. but they also found something which also correlates with a study that was done on hog island boas. I don't remember who did it. I'm, I didn't write it down. I'm sorry. Where? they talk about the growth rates in these snakes and mm-hmm. it's interesting in that kind of like we've talked about with some other species, snakes are able to reproduce way before they reach that maximum adult size, mm-hmm. but they go into kind of how you get the giants. So what mm-hmm. it is, is it does take a very long time for a snake to actually get gigantic where first off, uh, the retics were eating mice almost exclusively. They get to the point where they're eating nothing but mice. And then Every once in a while, you get a female that's just big enough to, like, take down one chicken or one small monkey. And once she does that, it's almost like her completely leveling up. The growth rate just (laughs) explodes. It's like going up a stair step. Uh And that happens all the way up to pigs. But it takes a long time for them to get to the point where they can take down wild pigs. Like, what are we talking in in terms of time? Did you you remember? They they weren't sure. Literally, Mm -hmm. they're going out to uh, skin farms, and they're just cutting open the snakes that are being skinned and figuring out what's inside of them. They count the rings? Yeah, they counted the rings. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, they found out even when a snake is significantly, (laughs) you know, in captivity, you think too big to be eating rats, it's still Uh eating rats because it's, for lack of a better word, it's trying to get to the point where it can level up. Hmm. And in Hog Island bows, you see the same thing where they're eating seasonal birds, kind of like the mutton birds in Australia, where, you know, the Hog Islands will have a huge influx of songbirds and shorebirds come down during the wintertime and they leave. But the giants on the Hog Islands are able to eat iguanas. 
Mm-hmm. And once they're able to eat iguanas, which can take forever and only a very small percentage of a small percentage of females can do it. Mm-hmm. Once they hit that point, though, that's all they eat is what they figured out is they switch over to uh, basically being a specialist for the large things. Mm-hmm. And the problem is once they get that big and they start reproducing, it's really easy to starve to death once you've hit the point where you're a large prey item specialist. So they'll say some of these monster female hog island boas, you'd find them, you know, you'd radio track them for a few years once they eat an iguana. You know, once they get to where they can eat iguanas. And then you just find them emaciated after maybe litter number one or litter number two of that. Because when a snake lays eggs, it's using its fat reserves. But it's also using uh, the amino acids out of its muscles hmm. to, you know, feed the offspring and grow up the eggs. So that's how the giants are made, and that's how the giants die. Is it's not a linear growth; it's almost like a stair step leather, leveling up growth. Is that is that because they can't find the large prey item and they don't go backwards? They don't go back to mice, or or, or that mice at that point can't keep up with what they need um i i assume it's they just don't want to go backwards for hmm. some reason there there was a study uh looking at diets in jungle carpets compared with uh, uh scrub pythons in australia and they showed that uh there was quite a bit of overlap with uh you know, the, the, the prey items and that a, a large scrub would often take, you know, a, a meal that was really, you know, small for that animal, but it would still take it, you know? Um, well, yeah, but, but you're talking about, you're talking about resource partitioning through competition, right? Yeah. And, and, they, and what they, if, what if there is no, you know, what, it, I mean, I would imagine once those, you know, those animals make that jump, and they're eating iguanas, there's probably not a lot of other animals eating those iguanas, or maybe they are, I don't know, but but you know, or maybe there's not a lot of iguanas. So if they can't find an iguana, right, then right, 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 right. One thing that always seems to be true in any ecosystem when you talk about niche partitioning and is that the amount of prey, suitable prey at different sizes varies a lot. The smaller mm-hmm. the prey is, smaller animals are more numerous than larger animals, and the bigger the mass of the potential prey animal is, the less of them are, on, the thinner they are on the ground. So when you get to like somewhere like Australia where you've got carpets. Uh, sharing space with scrub pythons and then further north green pythons and scrub pythons. They're eating the same things initially because there's a lot of that small stuff, but eventually the scrub pythons will get big enough to where they're eating things that only they're eating and they've got this niche carved out for themselves, that large apex predator where they're eating tree kangaroos and wallabies Mm -hmm. and things. Uh, Which is interesting because it's almost like an argument you you could find an argument for both of you guys in that in that statement. Yeah, right? yeah, it kind of <laughs> you know? can go either way because yeah, like, I mean it's while advantageous the- to stay small because there's more available food, but it, if you live in an ecosystem where you have that larger prey, it's advantageous for you to jump to that and and try to you know hog a, that resource for yourself. There's a really good example of that within the same species in carpet pythons on Garden Island, the Imbricata. Mm-hmm. On Garden Island, you have this like ridiculous level of uh, sexual size dimorphism with these tiny little males that are like 300 grams and then like seven foot females because there's only little tiny things and wallabies and there's <laughs> nothing really in between. So the males just stay super, super tiny and live off mice and the females get huge 
any wallabies because <laughs> and see, mm-hmm. I think it's the largest size the greatest size disparity as far as size dimorphism of any vertebrate is these pythons on that island mm-hmm. where they're just that that much difference between them. Yeah, it's on the mainland. Cool. It's not nearly so much. Yeah, but, that, but weird things happen on islands. So. There, yeah. there was also some evidence that you know the introduced. Uh, species like the brush-tailed possums up in the Darwin area were having an effect on, you know, size and carpet pythons and that these, they're having this monster, you know, 10-foot male Darwin carpets that are, you know, feeding mostly on brush-tailed possums where that wasn't a possibility, you know, in the, in the recent past. For, uh, for those people not familiar with Australian possums, this is an animal about the size of a house cat. Yeah. So. <laughs> And, and they're eating house cats, for, too. Yeah. <laughs> substantial meal for a carpet pine. Uh-huh. But, uh-huh. I mean, I think a lot of people don't realize is that, like, adult size is, there's no such thing as a fixed adult size. Like, they're, that's mm-hmm. a pretty plastic, you know, phenotypically plastic trait, you would say. It's like they're, and even, like, at the, you know, genetic level, I guess, if you will, there's, that seems to be, that variable is easily changed. Um if you look at with the scrub python clade, the two of the closest, most closely related members are King Horni and Nauta, the largest and smallest species, are very, very recently diverged from each other. And yet mm. in this short period of time, they have this a, a pygmy scrub python and this monster, and they share a fairly recent common ancestor. It doesn't take long to downsize or upsize. Yeah, and and that would make sense if you if you needed rapid mutation uh, in order to adapt in an environment, you know, food prey size and 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 your max size, you know, or adult size is probably better. Is is something you would expect to see rapid, you know, be part of those rapidly changing genes, or it just wouldn't it wouldn't work out well for the animals, you know. Hmm. You see that the concepts of insular gigantism and insular dwarfism, and you see it all over the place with everything it's like think something gets on an isolated island and if there's big stuff to eat they get bigger rapidly to eat the big stuff or they get shrunk down to eat the small stuff yeah you know they get like channel island mammoths and stuff it's like it didn't take very long for them to be you know from the one of the largest proboscideans ever known to be like this six foot tall pygmy mammoth it didn't take very long because there wasn't enough food yeah. so it just downsized quickly and that's probably very much an epigenetic you know, uh, mm-hmm. mechanism for, for, for environmental, you know, it uh, does. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be like a major amount of a pretty easy change to make. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what they say is that, uh, size, color and pattern and to a lesser extent, uh, the number of babies produced are things that change very quickly mm. yeah. in any population. Yeah. You know, way faster make, than I like mean, bone structure sense, you know? or yeah. digestion. Mm-hmm. Which is which is why animals look, you know, why carpet subspecies look so different, but really aren't that, you know, they're really not that different when you start looking genetically at them. So yeah. that makes sense. <clears throat> with with these things, I, this is kind of to both of you guys. Do, do you think uh, reproduction and and I guess maturity? I, I guess I would uh, qualify that as as adult size as once they can start. successfully reproducing you know if they're building producing follicles that can be fertilized they're adults right and so i guess i would define adulthood as that so do you think that uh 
um, size or, or age probably has a greater impact in that regard? Size, in terms of reproductive output, is seems to be more important than age for most things. There are exceptions with things like Brettles pythons that just they just don't breed till they get older. Uh, they, you can get them up to size, and they'll just sit there for a couple of years until they're old enough. Hmm. Uh, where size is more of a factor, not necessarily more of a factor than age, but a bigger factor than it is with related species. Whereas the other carpet pythons, mostly. When they get big enough, they'll do it or are capable of doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, the definitely the size seems to be more important than age. But, you know, I don't know. With feeding and any of these, this whole discussion, it's like, how are we defining? A lot of it, I guess, comes down to how do you define success? Are you successful if you cranked out a ton of animals and the snake died when it was seven years old, but it left 100 offspring behind? Is that is that better? And more desirable of an outcome or is the snake that made maybe less offspring but lived to be 25 years old because what it seems like is you get one or the other but you can't have both you don't get the snake that cranks out year after year and lives a long time you get and i will admit you know we've all done this and a lot of one bad thing i think about reptile keeping in the age of social media is that people are so worried about appearances and whatnot because there's that lynch mob with pitchforks and torches if you oh my god that wants to correct you on everything and it's usually a bunch of dinglings don't know much yeah fuck those people <laughs> there are some mistakes we have all made there are common experiences that we all have had but we don't really talk about well at the beginning let's talk about that snake that dropped dead out of the blue for no reason it's like we've all had that happen probably multiple times that's a thing that goes along with snake keeping that you know we, we tend to talk endlessly about our successes and we tend to minimize or ignore and not mention failures. And I will admit yeah. right now, I have killed a number of adult carpet python females by overbreeding them. This idea that you can feed them a lot, breed them year after year after year, and they'll drop dead by their 10th birthday. I have done that several times. Not That was not obviously my intention, but I've noticed this in my own collection. That, you know, Sometimes it's like you just... I had the, it was like the greatest looking jungle carpet I think I've ever owned in my life. Great snake. It threw twins, like every multiple sets of twins at every clutch, big clutches. And the thing wanted to breed every year. And she bred every year for five years and dropped dead. Like the last time it just like, she left a lot of offspring. I mean, there's a mm. lot of her offspring out there. I, you know, I'm still breeding her offspring descendants, but that snake, I can't help but think that snake would, probably have lived substantially longer than it's nine years or whatever. Had I not bred it five years in a row and fed it so much, mm -hmm. uh, even earlier going back, you know, 15, 20 years, I had a, you know, when I was starting the ivory jungle thing, I had some of those early ones. I fed them way too much weight got, they got way too big and they quit breeding and didn't live that long. Cause ultimately, you know, you shouldn't be feeding your carpet pythons, Guinea pigs. But, you know, I was a hobbyist at one point 20 years, 20, 25 years ago, too. And I got a hell of a good deal on some guinea pigs. <laughs> I'm like, sure, feed these guinea pigs. And these females got huge. And then they, you got a few clutches and then you didn't get any clutches. And then the snake's dead at eight years old because it was never supposed to be eight feet long. And so yeah. some of these, like, concepts I'm talking about, I've unfortunately, I've lived that experience and made those mistakes with had those bad, bad outcomes. And so, so I just, I don't know. The older I get, I'm like, I'd like these things to be around for live a decent life expectancy, mm -hmm. you know, at least more than a decade. I define that as at least 
12 or 14 years at least. And, and you and, know, you're, you're talking about animals that have, uh, you, you know, the, their agenda and our agenda may not be the same thing, right? You know, the, to them, lots of offspring and not living long by their bio, their, their, their most basic biological drive. They won, they succeeded. They did, they did what they were supposed to do, but, but we failed them in our personal ethic of, of living that, you know, giving them the most longevity that we can give. And, and, you know, is that the most important thing or like that, that becomes like such a, a between us, you know, uh, what's the right thing to do. And, and for God's sakes, we're all snake breeders here. Like, you know, I mean, so it's kind of, it's, it's not even, you know, you, you could, you could say somebody's not doing their snake right by breeding the shit out of it and getting lots of eggs and the snake lives a shortened life because of that. But I mean, you're a snake breeder. That's what you're, that's what, you know, that's what the animal wants to do. That's what you're there to do. So, it, you know, like <laughs> at some level, it's kind of like, I, I, I feel people when they say, you know, Hey, you're, you're not acting ethically, but you know, at some level too, it's like, yeah, check that shit. At <laughs> are the there evo- are there ethics in evolution? <laughs> yeah. Right. Casey, what do you, exactly. what do you got? You got yeah. any well, thoughts? I mean, that is the, that is the difference between a hobbyist and a snake farmer at the mm-hmm. end of the day. Yeah, a farmer is going to say, let's get them cranked up and going as fast as possible, you know, get as many eggs as early on so we can get the next generation going, stuff like that. I mean, I don't really agree with that personally, but I mean, you can look at, you know, going back to the the K brothers feeding their uh, baby jungle carpet pythons every three days until they're ready to breed at 18 months for a female and probably like nine months for a male. I don't even know how. Mm-hmm. You know, as fast as a male can breed. <laughs> yeah. I think you, Chuck, I think you really hit the nail on the head. You said what the snake wants and what we want. And <laughs> I think to the extent that a snake is really capable of wanting anything, it would be to eat a lot, breed a lot, and make a lot of babies. That is yeah. their biological imperative. Eat, grow, breed. That's what they're programmed to do. It's what we're all programmed to do. So it is but- kind of a, are we... Supply, are we just projecting our own sort of sort of herpetological morality onto that? Yeah. It's like, yeah. Snakes don't I, worry I, about I, families or mortgages or yeah. or getting their kids to college. Like that's, snakes that's, don't know, you know what ten years means. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Terms, like it is like the animals that you know bred like crazy and dropped dead by eight years old were more successful if they passed more genes along. Mm. Yeah, it is yeah. that simple. But is that? I guess my concern is more. That mindset, if you keep going down that road, you eventually just look at animals purely as a commodity. And mm-hmm. at that point, I don't know that that is a healthy thing for us. It's like it's if it's just a commodity, it's just a thing. It's like not I don't know. I don't know that that's healthy in, in my opinion. Um, it's yeah. it's hard to check the ethics of it once you've accepted the, the, the biological truth of the whole thing. Right. Like you can take that biological truth way too far. And then it's just like, you know, a thing like any other thing. And these aren't just things, they're live animals. Right. So there there could be, there could be an argument that um, nature does regulate things by having seasonality, you know, and, and, and in captivity, we can ignore that seasonality and just pump them full of food all year long, you know, and Mm -hmm. keep them hot enough, maybe drop the temp for a couple months and then back up and start feeding them again. You know, uh, like Casey was saying, though, there is some self-regulation, but, you know, we can we can kind of 
overrides. Depends on the species, too. I mean, ball pythons are very good at self-regulation. Oh, yeah. I don't think carpet pythons are. Like, I really don't think (laughs) carpet pythons have any self-control. But if you look at a green python or a carpet python versus some of these other things, they have different lifestyles. Mm -hmm. Carpets and green pythons are extreme ambush predators. They sit around virtually their whole life doing nothing, waiting for something to get close enough to eat. They're not... Yeah. actively searching for it nearly so much as something like a black-headed python that's on the move, you know, more actively pursuing it. So they're expending more energy to find uh, prey, whereas a carpet can get fat real easy because they're really good at sitting around and waiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And not, and not doing a lot. So I... Yeah, speaking of body fat, was that... Um, was it Matt Somerville that had that uh, species of brown snake that only ate, like, two mice a year <laughs> and and one of them died and it had just fat bodies throughout the whole, you know, you'd just be like, what is going on? Um, yeah. They're, they're very efficient. Some of these. Species. Well, and it's, it's interesting too, is like the, the less you feed something, if it's really an efficient, if it has a really efficient metabolism, the less you feed something, does more of that try to get stored as fat and, and they're trying to reduce mm. their their energy output so that they can store more as fat because they're not getting fed as much. Is there is I mean, is that does that happen at significant enough levels to impact the, the animal is I mean, question. No, no expectation of an answer. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things like you kind of got to wonder, like, I mean, you know. Is that a thing? I don't know. I don't know. So in the short-term Antaresia study, which, again, Antaresia are very different than any other pythons, they didn't find a correlation in efficiency of digestion between the ones that were fed basically the bare minimum and the ones that were fed as much as they wanted. Hmm. So, But again, Mm -hmm. they were babies and they were baby Antaresia. So is that going to translate well over Mm -hmm. to a baby ball python or a baby Burmese python? I don't know, because there is definitely a point in a snake's life, you know, the first two, three years, especially where most of the food brought in is going directly to growth. It's not going to yeah. fat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't think you could hold that argument with with, an, with adult anteresia. No, no, definitely not. Yeah. It's some pretty fat adult anteresia. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, they'll, they'll do it for sure. <laughs> I remember I saw a, fly, a five foot spotted python at a reptile expo one time, and it was like I was simultaneously just disgusted and amazed. And I, <laughs> I thought it was like horrible, but also awesome because I just never seen something that big. I, I saw I saw a pretty big uh, DOR uh, Western Stimson's python. We, I think really? we even had Steve Sharp lay next to it on the ground to show how big this thing was. It was wow. an impressive wild, you know, Stimson's python. But, so I mean, you know, there there are yeah, there are there are exceptions to the rule, and that probably was one of them. But yeah, it leveled up. Yeah, it leveled, up. <laughs> it leveled up. I like that. I do like that. <laughs> Start too. using that. Yeah. Well, um, any uh, closing thoughts, any any uh, topics you didn't get to bring up that you wanted to, to make before we we're going on an, an hour and a half? We usually wrap it up about an hour, but I figured this one might go a little longer than, than usual. But what do yeah, you got, Casey? You got anything that uh, you weren't able to bring up? Uh, I, I don't think so right now. OK. Nick? I'll. 
I don't think so, but I'll think of it the second I turn. Yeah, right on. at three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> I'm going to text you like, oh, there's this other paper I completely forgot about. I'm going to come yeah. up with like the greatest point ever, and I'm not. It's right as soon as because that's always how it, how it is. I don't know. That's I guess ultimately it's kind of a parting sort of. You know, I don't know. I there's but we all are kind of riding this line, aren't we? With the, how much we feed, and we're all. Nobody's totally innocent either. It's like, I'm no, like no. have I had things that were more important, more than things that were less important to me, what I deemed important? Yeah. Do I still do that? Yeah. So am I kind of a hypocrite? Probably. Like I'm not, I don't think I'm feeding something a ton, but there are, we tend to favor things, don't we? When it comes time to the, the hierarchy, mm-hmm. the food totem pole of who's, who's on top, who's on bottom and everything. And we do yeah. sort of favor with the food, the things that and the projects and the particular individuals that, we wish to grow. So even those of us like me, here I am on my soapbox talking about not doing this. I'm probably guilty, maybe not as much as some other people, but I probably am doing <laughs> that. I know I'm doing that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've got an amazing exanthic granite poplin carpet breeding up a storm at 18 months old right now. <laughs> now he weighs 550 grams soaking wet, but he's, he's not very big, but he's, he got into but he's, he's doing it. Yeah. Doing it, and it's like, well, that's you know, I probably made sure I got him up to that minimum size at that you know that time. So mm-hmm. I thought uh, I shouldn't be casting stones, I guess. Too many. <laughs> and on the flip well, side and- of that, I have a female uh, 2018 Brettles Het Stone Wash that uh, she just got to the point where she could eat rats, so she's still <laughs> super tiny at uh, four years mm-hmm. old. <laughs> oh, I've got some 2018 Brettles that are nowhere near breeding, and they're like super important ones. Like I have 2018 hypo stone wash that are 100% het for stripe and i have two pairs of them they're not even going to be close to big enough to breed when they're old enough they'll be four years old and i'll be waiting another year because <laughs> i just haven't they're not tiny but they're not you know yeah they're not uh well uh this has been a it's been a good good discussion all around i i, I think I, i've learned some cool stuff and and i appreciate you guys coming on and discussing this topic hopefully our listener has gotten something out of it as well mm-hmm. um let let them let our uh the people know where they can find you guys where where uh where are you at in social media and such <laughs> uh, i'm everywhere i'm easy to find <laughs> I, uh, I find myself not posting on social media as much as I used to because, well, you guys know why. It's kind of like you're just kind of like, I'm. this is, uh, I don't know. It's like it's too frustrating these days, the mindset. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I will sure. only answer a question if it's something really, really interesting at this point. Like it just because the sort of zeitgeist on social media is getting to a, a kind of an unhealthy place. But uh, I'm around. I'm easy to find on social media. I'm, and by social media, I mean Facebook because I'm too old for Instagram and these other. <laughs> I, don't, I think like it, when you get close to fifty, I don't think you're allowed to be on some of these other platforms. It's yeah. yeah for the young well, kids. And, and you're one of the few people that really keeps their website nicely updated. So, <laughs> tell us your website. What a lot of good it does me. It's like everybody's <laughs> like, "Is this still available?" It's like, man, I update this every single day, and then I still have to answer the questions because no one believes that I update. <laughs> yeah, that's because nobody else does. Does <laughs> yeah, right? Like, exactly. When they ask me, I'm like, "Nope, it's not." <laughs> I've it four times this week. Like it is something that constantly, and I'm changing pictures and updating. It's like so much work, and no one believes it. Yeah. And somebody this morning it was like, 
are you going to update the pictures of this snake? It's like, are you kidding me? The picture's like nine <laughs> days old. This is like nine days ago. Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> I need a live stream uh, video of the tub that it's in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. yeah. Get a live stream. I've had each that animal. kind of request where they're like, are you just, do you think I'm going to rip you off? So you want like some proof that it's a real snake and that like this is a real thing? Like, yeah. but uh, yeah. my website's uh, inlandreptile.com. Super easy to find. I'm, I'm always around. So yeah, easy a lot of good stuff. And it's there. always updated folks. Stop <laughs> Nick for dumb shit. I'm trying to work on the rest of the website and trying to update some of the species pages and stuff. You can't I'm, get to it, right? You're answering questions. I know it's, it's just trying to, well now with a new book coming out, the taxonomic arrangements different. So it's like, yeah. I gotta make my own website. Oh. Even up with. Yeah. You gotta Look at you make it consistent. More work for yourself. Right. <laughs> Ultimately, that kind of stuff, it's like the evidence is what the evidence is and whether yeah. it's inconvenient or makes more work or whether it, you know, you can't yeah. have sacred cows. You have to just, it just is. So yeah. I've had to make some peace with some things I didn't like in the, as a result of all this. But, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, but definitely an interesting uh, uh, problem or, or uh, conundrum here. <laughs> Casey, how can yeah, people get uh, a hold of you? Uh, you can find me on Facebook, uh, Casey Cannon. Uh, I'm sure if you're a reptile person, we have to have at least one or two mutual friends. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I am on Instagram, uh, Cannon Fire Reptiles. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm actually on that a lot more than I am on anything else because apparently that's everybody's favorite uh, messaging <laughs> app right now is Instagram Messenger. Uh-huh. Uh, I do have a personal Facebook page, but please stop messaging it because I don't check it. <laughs> and <laughs> so yeah, if you go cannon fire reptiles on Facebook and messaging me or message me, I'm going to be a little bit upset with you because <laughs> every time you do it and I don't reply to your thumbs up, I get multiple emails that say, Hey, you haven't responded to this person. And it's literally just a thumbs up. So I'm like, I don't, yeah. I don't want to respond to that. Stop reminding it. Do you ever get the ones you get a message and it just says, hi, like, what, yeah. what are you a complete thought? Like, what do you, what, what's a, it's like, now you're going to ask me a question, but you make me ask you a question as to what your question, you just like added a whole extra step. We didn't even <laughs> with it. Just, what do you want to know? And that's the thing too, is Facebook gets so mad at you if you don't answer every single message or if you're not the last one to say something. So yeah, yeah. I'm getting a little tired of getting notifications every single morning of you have four unanswered messages on Facebook messenger. It's yeah, just somebody gave me a thumbs up after I said yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, we we again we appreciate you guys coming on. This was yeah, a, a thanks, fun guys. discussion. Yeah. Um check out uh Morelli Python Radio.com for uh info on the the radio or Morelli Python Radio Network. I I can't talk. I'm yeah. Anyway, <laughs> follow him on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, all at NPR Network. Um, so thanks for listening, and we will catch you next week for another episode of Reptile Fight Club. Keep fighting, folks. Fight Club.